Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your host. Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle and 106.3 FM Los Angeles. Um, now today we are bringing up a book called The Flying Taggers and we've got the author Sam Kleiner. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. So so Sam, so this this before we get into the book, excellent book. Um, I've been listening to it actually, not not reading it. Eyes are getting on me. Uh, so tell us a little bit so the listeners know who you are and how you got into writing this particular story. Well, thank you so much again for having me on. Um, I'm originally uh, from Tucson, Arizona, and um, grew up oh. um, um, out there. Um, and uh, my grandfather was a navigator on a B-25 in the Pacific. And I remember as a kid, um, he would tell me about uh, you know his experience in the war, and he actually lived up um, in Tacoma, and would come down sometimes, and we'd go out to the Pima Air and Space Museum, and he would show me the planes out there. So I kind of always just grew up with this interest in uh, World War II, and particularly in the Pacific and aviation. Um, and, and I studied history in college, and then um, in graduate school, 
um, wrote a doctorate on this period in history, this kind of fascinating period right before World War II, or right on the cusp of World War II, fascinating debates about isolationism, America's place in the world, while these debates, while these uh, wars are raging across the Pacific and the Atlantic. And I think we all kind of grew up with this idea that World War II started on December 7, 1941. But I encountered um, this as one of these incredible stories of, of really how things aren't always um, as, as they appear to be when, when we first encounter them. And the Flying Tigers were this secret unit of American pilots who were sent over to aid the Chinese um, before World War II. Um, and um, and um, before we got into World War II, and, and um, so that is uh, something that grabbed my attention very quickly, and um, and I just kind of decided that I wanted to uh, to write this, um, and it's just an amazing human story that hadn't really been studied before. Yeah, I was really surprised. I had no idea that this even went on. Um, it's kind of strange that it hasn't really been uh, publicized before this very much. Yeah, it's you know it's one of those amazing things where the image of the um, uh, shark face P forty is one of the d defining images of World War Two, but um, there hadn't been a lot of attention paid to who are the pilots behind this uh, this unit or what what are their stories, and so one of the first. Um, things I did in my research was try and figure out who are these people. And I found a collection of love letters, if you can believe it, in an archive at Yale that um, were between a pilot and a nurse in the unit. And these were just incredible letters um, that um, showed this kind of ordinary romance in some ways that was taking place in the most extraordinary circumstances. So I set out over a three-year period to try and find as many um, diaries and letters and combat reports and photographs from the unit as I could. And I ended up working a lot with the um, families of the um, um, uh, of the Tigers and going to their reunions and kind of being welcomed into this community around the unit. Um, and they, they entrusted me with a lot of uh, never-before-seen materials that allowed me to really tell the human story of, of, of this famous unit. Yeah, and that, that's an important part. Yeah. It gives... It gives life to the story for people to relate to. Um, now, now let's 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 set the time. So now this is the um, summer of 1941 when this begins, and so this is before uh, Pearl Harbor, and um, mm -hmm. before it, it, like America was still uh, relatively uh, in a peace uh, state. They weren't involved in anything at the time, and. Um, so, so explain what happened. What what did America do, and and what did they send these guys to do? It's a great question. So, the the story of World War II, and you know, generally when we think of World War II, we may think of uh, Europe and the landing at D-Day, um, which is the anniversary is tomorrow, or the flag raising mm -hmm. in Iwo Jima. But we typically don't think of China as really being part of World War II. And China was actually one of the four core allies during the war, and for them, the, uh, the war went back as far as 1937 with the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War when Japan invaded China, and they were, the Chinese were pushed back into a small corner of the country down in the south in Kunming and Chongqing, and they were really being bombed with these devastating raids, um, and not a lot of Americans know this story, but um, that was a it was a very brutal part of World War II. Um, obviously, there's the rape of Nanking and just a whole host of um, massacres and a huge loss of life from these severe bombing raids. Um, and my story focuses in some ways on that 
experienced through the lens of a handful of Americans who were there really as mercenaries, um, including Claire Chenault, who later became famous as the commander of the unit, um, and working with the Chinese Air Force. Um, so it's just this incredible story. Um, and that eventually turns into an official American unit. Um, the Americans decide they're going to send over military pilots who are given passports listing false professions on them to disguise their mission. And America was secretly going to aid the Chinese um, because Roosevelt wanted to, both in the European and in the Pacific theaters, take action where he could to aid the Allies, calling America the arsenal of democracy, as he put it in one speech, talking about taking measures short of war. Um, and so obviously, you know, this is a grave act of, that violates the, the isolationism embodied in the Neutrality Acts in Congress and goes against the principles of, of neutrality and international law. But Roosevelt um, saw that there was a real need here. And so you have these young men who are kind of casually recruited on this mysterious mission to go to the Far East. So um, Pabby Boynton, who's, who's actually um, from Tacoma, is one of my main characters, and he talks about going to a bar in uh, Pensacola where he's stationed as a marine aviator, and someone comes up to him and says, you know, how would you like to go into the Far East um, and, uh, and uh, um, you know, you'll, you'll get a chance to see some real combat. And, um, and he says that sounds like a good idea, mostly because he had a lot of personal problems. He had a lot of gambling debt. His wife had left him. And he didn't really know anything about the Far East, but that sounded like a, like a good thing to do. So for so many of these guys, this is just a great adventure. Um, one of my favorite pilots is this guy from Iowa. He writes in his diary when he gets on the ship, going over about how this is his first time on a, a body of water bigger than a lake back home. <laughs> now, now so, oh, I was going to say, just, just before um, you jump in, Kevin, specifically, then Roosevelt sent these guys secret, uh, but was it just Roosevelt, or was it, the, um, was it a certain organization like CIA, or was it the Congress? Like, how did this happen without anybody knowing about it? Like, who was behind it? It's a great question. So, um, the CAA, you know, com comes around later after World War II, and, and actually Chenault plays a role in, in some ways in helping get it started because his, his private airline becomes involved. Um, so there's a lot, and I have a whole chapter on this on this question, and it's a, it's just this fascinating story of backroom dealings in Washington. Um, there's actually a, a lot of commercial activity around this. So there's one guy who has a company that's making a lot of money off this, and they, they basically set up shell companies to funnel aid that was supposed to go over to China that was more like commercial aid, and it gets siphoned off to this front company, which is then paying um, for these planes and these pilots to go over. So all these guys who are leaving the U.S. military sign a one-year contract with a private company called Camco, which was a, a exporter of, of planes. Um, and so this was really one, you know, I think a fascinating mix of commercial activity with um, government activity. And it kind of in some ways sets the stage for things like Iran-Contra and later things that prove more controversial. But because obviously World War II is, you know, seen as kind of the, the good war, we don't really have any, um, you know, the same kind of qualms we would have about something like this today. So what was the criteria so in some ways it was, you know, they were looking for experienced pilots um, and they were looking for people who were willing to do this. So a lot of the pilots they recruited had some kind of connection to the Far East in the sense that they had a family member there um, who had been from there. Um, and some of them, their parents had served as missionaries. 
Um, there's one uh, mm-hmm. woman actually in the unit. Her name is Emma Foster, and she's a, uh, she's one of a couple nurses actually. And um, that that's the love letters that I found at Yale. But um, she had served as a um, she had studied abroad in China when she was in college at Penn State, and just kind of fell in love with the country and was looking for an opportunity to go back and saw this as as one of those opportunities. Um, so so you see people just coming with a whole host of different motivations. Um, I was just down in Columbus, Georgia a few weeks ago seeing the the last surviving flying tigers. And his name's Frank Lozanski. He's become a good friend in the process of writing this book. And Frank was um, you know, really a child of the Great Depression in Detroit, Michigan. He talks about how when he was growing up, his family was so poor that he'd go down to the train tracks to pull up little pieces of coal that he could use to, that had fallen off a train to heat their um, home. And, um, you know, for him, this, you know, he had joined the Army Air Corps and he's being offered a lot of money now to go join this unit. And, and so that definitely played a role in it. Some people call these guys mercenaries. I don't think that's really exactly the right term because they were more adventurers than anything else. But the, the money definitely played a role in, in what motivated these guys to go. Um, and it was really more of like a frat party than anything else when they first got over there. They were stationed at the secret base and were drinking heavily and there was some training going on. Um, but then after Pearl Harbor, they quickly had to, they were pretty much the only Americans who were in place to fight back against the Japanese. So they rushed into battle over Kunming, China. Their first battle is December 20th, 1941. And they shoot down a number of Japanese bombers. And most Americans couldn't point to Kunming on a map, but this quickly became one of the great stories from the early days of the war because you have a whole host of American losses happening across the Pacific and a fear that America was going to be invaded. And here's this kind of ragtag crew of pilots who are who are um, basically coming to the rescue. So overnight they become these kind of heroic figures. Um, but in, in that uh, the mythology that grew up around that, the, the John Wayne movie and so on, the real story's been lost. So that's really what this book is about. So how many at at this point in time? How many are left? So, uh, so there's now only one left, this gentleman, Frank Lozanski, who I just went down to see, and he's 97 oh, wow. years old. Um, so we just had a piece on CNN on Memorial Day, um, which was really great. You know, it's been great to be able to assure him, you know, that this story is going to live on for future generations and is finally being told. Um, and I've, I've formed really great relationships with so many of the family members with, with Father's Day coming up. That was something I was thinking about, that so much of the story now is carried on the shoulders of the children of people who were in the unit or other relatives who have decided that they want to make a considerable investment of their own time in, in ensuring that the legacy of the Tigers lives on. So they, um, starting in the 1950s, would have these annual reunions, and they still have them every year to try and... Um, um, you know, come together and talk about the experience of the, of the Tigers. Um, so there's really just, a, you know, this, this marvelous community that's grown up around this. And um, I think that it, uh, it, it it is a story that's important. It's important that we remember this history, and it's important that this lives on. So, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, when when so when they were over there and they had and Pearl Harbor happened, um, so they started taking the initiative to fight against the Japanese. Um, how, how well did they do? Like how and and how many of them actually survived the fight? Well, it's a great question, and um, so the 
in total, there were there were a number of them over over 20 that were killed in combat in this period between December 41 and July 42 when the Tigers officially disbanded. Um, and that, those were those were major stories in their own right in, in the country. And I talk about some of those pilots who didn't make it home, including um, Jack Newkirk from Scarsdale, New York, and he he'd kind of become a household name. Um, and so when he was killed in March of 1942 in a raid in Thailand, that was a that was a major headline. It was across the country. Um, and so, so in, in July of 1942, the unit was merged into the official Army Air Corps, and many of these guys decided they were going to go um, go home and then um, kind of rejoin the fight. So this guy, like Bill Reed, the pilot from Iowa I mentioned, um, decides he's going to go home, and so there's a huge homecoming parade in Marion, Iowa. They throw Bill Reed Day, and the governor comes out to speak, and there's a parade unlike anything anyone had seen before in the state of Iowa, um, and um, Bill Reed's there, and he gives a speech about you know how proud he is to be a Tiger returning home, and then the, there's still a war to fight, so, so many of these guys ended up going back to do different things. Uh, Bill Reed ended up returning to China and was eventually killed in 1945 um, uh, on as part of a raid, and um, Abby Boynton, who became one of the famous pilots from the unit, would go on to... Um, form his own unit, um, the, the Black Sheep Squadron, for which he'd become famous. There's a TV show, Baba Black Sheep, about him. He was shot down and held as a prisoner of war by the Japanese for years and presumed dead. And only at the very end of the war, when they were liberating these POW camps, did they find him um, there still alive. Um, so these guys would go on to do just extraordinary things. Um, but the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, whatever they ended up doing later in life, they kind of always held this pride of being a flying tiger. That was the thing that really been the most important thing that, that mattered to them. It was something that most of them had done in their early 20s. So, so these reunions took on a very important deal to them because it was a chance for them to reconnect with this, their squadron. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Were were they, uh, like I was going to, like you mentioned the one pilot that had kind of a troubled life and they, um, and he went, uh, you know, into battle for them and stuff. What about the uh, the others? Now, were were everybody in the same situation, or were they sort of uh, more of a, a regular family life? Like, um, how how did, how did they maintain family life during this time? That's a great question. Yeah, it's so so hard for so many of these guys during the war. In fact, uh, Frank Lazansky, who's the the last surviving tiger, left behind a girlfriend uh, back in Michigan, Nancy. Um, and he, you know, he came back and married her after he got back in, in uh, 1942, and they were married for over 70 years. Um, so for so many of these guys, they just have extraordinary lives. But um, you know, they, these these guys really came from all walks of, of life in America, and that's one of the things that I think is so compelling about them. You have guys in here who are graduates of Ivy League schools and come from wealthy backgrounds. You have guys who um, came from, you know, like Lozanski, um, real children of the Depression who had very um, hard-scrabbled upbringings and, and everywhere in between. Um, and so that kind of um, diversity of experience really was um, part of what made the unit so fascinating was, you know, everyone just kind of was in it together for this common objective. So what do you, so what do you think about this now? Um, um, did, did I guess I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is, did they have any... Uh, awards or presentations or anything given to them for everything they did? It's, it's a great question. And, and in some ways, they weren't really officially acknowledged as even part of the U.S. military until 1991, mm. so 50 years after their action. And there was a reunion held in the 1990s in Texas where they were presented with a series of medals. Um, and, you know, by that point, there were um, not not uh, many of them left. One guy was there, um, walked across to, to get the, to get his medal with a seeing eye dog, and commented on how oh. you know extraordinary it is that he was you know finally getting his medal a little bit too late. Um, so so you know the, the the flying tigers definitely were part of our national conscience around the war. People recognized that image, but the actual men weren't weren't really honored for what they'd done, and and so many of them were in some senses bitter that they hadn't really been. Um, properly acknowledged. Claire Chenault, who was the commander of the unit, um, was bitter basically for the rest of the war. He, he commanded American air forces in China um, and never felt like he got the resources that he needed and he felt like he could have done more 
to win the war if he had been given more resources and had these grand ambitions of attacking Japan from the Chinese mainland that were somewhat extravagant, but you know had had um, you know he uh, was his belief that that was the best way to win the war. So when the war was over in 1945, there was a big parade for him down in New Orleans, and he went home to his farm in Louisiana. But he decided that after basically being away for eight years, the five years of World War II and, the, and three before that this wasn't home, that he felt more at home in China than he did in his native Louisiana. So he ended up going back to China and spent the rest of his career, in some senses, working for Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang, the, the leaders of nationalist China, even as they were kicked out of China and then sent to uh, what is what's now Taiwan. Um, and uh, basically would spend the rest of the... Um, his life kind of uh, is in some way engaged in this fighting. And I mentioned earlier about the CIA. The, the CIA, part of the CIA start was um, doing covert operations around Southeast Asia. And Chenault had a private airline called CAT, um, and that was actually secretly bought by the CIA in the 1950s and was utilized to conduct secret missions around Southeast Asia. So again, you see this kind of, you know, marriage between commercial interests and secret government activity. And so a lot of that, which still happens today, is, has its roots in the story of the flying tigers. And so I think, you know, it's a great story, but also I think it gives list, uh, it gives readers a lot to kind of think through about, you know, what's, what's you know, how U.S. foreign policy works and about our relationship with China today. Yeah, or what about his men? You know, that's what he had to be thinking about. What about my men? Why aren't they being recognized for this? Absolutely. He writes in, in one of these letters that I found about, you know, the feeling of, you know, that he's he's been losing men for years and, they you know, they, they become like sons to him. And so that was always something that was very challenging for him was that he, you know, formed these deep personal attachments uh, but had to, you know, kind of wage a war. And, and that, that necessarily meant that men were going to get killed. So then this, this pilot from Iowa, Bill Reed, was killed in 1945. He wrote in a letter that it was basically like losing a son. Um, and so, you know, this, the war was extremely long and extremely um, painful for so many of these men. Um, and I think that comes through. You know, it's obviously, you know, uh, the war had an important mission, taking down um, fascist Japan and going after Nazi Germany and defeating both of them and, and uh, Italy. Um, but, the, you know, the, the human cost of it is something that we don't always think of. Um, and so that, that really comes across for and, and these guys who are engaged in this war over many years. Did he ever write to any of the families? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. He writes extensively, you know, we think to his wife. Um, I've gotten, I've worked with his family to get all the letters and diaries that he has. But after the war, uh, he divorced his first wife and then moved back to, to China and married a younger woman, um, a, a Chinese woman who became known as Anna Chenault. She actually just passed away a few months ago. I was able to interview her two years ago. Um, and his first wife burned, as the family tells me, burned the letters that he had sent over the years. So there were only a handful that survived. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a loss to history, but I, I, you can kind of understand her, her anger in that, I'm sure. And it, it, it's just a, you know, there's so many human parts of the story that really come through, and that's what I was trying to trying to convey, and I think uh, listeners, you know, if you, if you have an interest in this period in history, so many of the photographs are also really captivating because they come from these 
you know, private collections of families who've been saving these photographs as family heirlooms for decades, um, and are, are kind of put together in a way that um, you, you you know you kind of have a sense of um, uh, of really what the what the story is with uh, you know these 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 photographs are part of the story. But this is so isolated. Why hasn't anybody tried to make a you know a television series about this? Like you know, you know, growing up, I remember Torah, 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 and uh, you know, I remember so many others. And why hasn't anybody tried to do this? Well, I think we got to get the word out. I think it makes a great. I think it makes for a great movie. You know, there's obviously the original John Wayne movie from 1942 called The Flying Tigers. It's not a particularly factually accurate account of the tiger story, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. that you know, there's there's a great story here that's waiting for someone to be told. Um, and the interesting part to me is that you know these guys are like famous in China. That the Fei Hu, the Flying Tigers, are, are like is like a household name. So when these guys would go back to China in later years, they were swarmed on the streets like they were heroes. So it's mm-hmm. it's just an amazing um, you know connection that that we have with. Um, um, with China today, um, and you know that we share this history really, um, and I do think that there's an important story there that can help to you know kind of bridge the divide and, and remind us, you know, with, with as much um, as in the news about all the confrontations with China over you know real issues, um, that we do have this shared history of working together, um, and, and it's not something that we should be that we should discard. Yeah, you know, why not? You know, with like, you know, with today's politics, you know, with, with the way everything is going on uh, on a global scale, you know, why not, you know, have this? You know, this brings us together. Absolutely. I think it brings us together with China, and I also think it brings us together as Americans. You know, I think that one of the things that I, I really enjoy about this story is, you know, you don't, you don't know if these guys are, you know, Republicans or Democrats or what their politics are. You know, they, they all just had kind of a common mission. Um, and um, the, the, even at these reunions today, you know, you get these families together and they come from all different kinds of walks of life and I'm sure have different views on the world, but they're all just there to kind of, um, uh, you know, honor the, this unit and honor the mission and the, the the men themselves came from all different walks of life and, and had faced, the, you know, against really unbelievable odds, faced a common challenge. So um, it's uh, it, it's just an incredible story. When you were doing the research and all this stuff and you were uh, finding the families and, and people involved, how, how, how easy was it to get information and how were they reacting to a book? Well, I think they're they're really happy to see you know a, a younger historian come along and want to carry on the legacy of this story, um, and that is you know really what I've been trying to do. So I've been really you know privileged to to have the chance to work with a lot of them in uh, in, in bringing this story out, um, and and they've they've been very appreciative. So it's been a really great um, alliance. And as a, as a writer and historian, I feel really lucky to have found kind of a a community that's welcomed me in to, to kind of help share their story with the world. And what do you hope the readers will get out of the book? 
I think this is one of the great uh, stories from the greatest generation. I think it, you know, just kindles everything that's um, special about that that that, um, that era and that generation. I think that um, you know, there's there's kind of everything in here from foreign intrigue to a love story to uh, aviation combat um, and diplomacy. So I think that there's um, just you know, I, I hope that people can enjoy it on its own terms and 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 help us to appreciate our legacy. What what story stays with you the, the is the most um, has affected you the most and stayed with you that you've uh, learned about this? What, what personal story? That's a that's a great question. I think a lot about um, there's one raid where these these guys are on and they um, uh, see as they're returning from it that one of their planes is trailing smoke and isn't going to make it back and they. Um, watch as the plane starts to go lower and then the pilot bails out um, and he's over enemy territory in Thailand and is taken, they don't know this, but he's taken prisoner by the Japanese. Um, and then uh, at the very end of the war, one of the guys who was on that raid was there when uh, he was smuggled out of his, his POW camp and was brought back to their base. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a remarkable human story. There's so many of those um, that are in there, and I, I think that uh, listeners will really enjoy it. And obviously, we think it makes a great gift for uh, Father's Day, and hope you, uh, people check it out. <laughs> what, what's the largest? What's the biggest effect it had on you? What's the biggest change you, you find yourself um, feeling just, after this? Yeah, I just think you know it, it's a great reminder of how you know beneath every headline, there's there's just a fascinating story because the tiger is really just kind of a footnote or a um, a headline from from a bygone era, and, and beneath it, you can just find an amazing universe of um, a real human story. Wow, it's just an incredible book, and I, and uh, again, we recommend everybody uh, pick it up. We will have it linked to our website. Um, also, do you have uh, any um, contact information or anything that if people want to get a hold of you as the writer? Um, yeah, absolutely. People can find all my contact info and uh, information at flyingtigersbook.com. Fantastic. Again, the book is called The Flying Tigers, and the author is Sam Kleiner. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.